0: From Flourish DX, this is the Psych, Health and Safety Canada podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a priority for businesses who want to retain staff and prevent burnout, this is the source of information for creating sustainable and psychologically healthy workplaces in Canada.
1: Welcome to the Psych, Health and Safety in Canada podcast. Uh, my guest today is Trina, and Trina, I'm going to get you to introduce yourself and say, how you came to be interested in the field of psych health and safety.
0: Sounds great. Uh, My name is Trina Ralkoff. I'm a conflict management and resiliency specialist and proud to also say that I am a certified psychological health and safety advisor through the Canadian Mental Health Commission of Canada. Um, The interest is my background has been social work and mental health um, for over 20 years with experiences in institutions, hospitals, community, and schools. So to um, recognize the importance of mental health in workplaces and to actually have a global national understanding of what psychosocial risk factors are made me excited because it's been kind of what I've been communicating for many years and trying to help support and build healthier
1: workplaces. So that's interesting because... Um, I'm always curious, what was the language that you used to describe psych health and safety before we had those words? Um, it, It was
0: basically looking at just mental health or what makes you feel safe. So what I like to practice, and I remind myself, because again, we all, you know, nobody's perfect and we're all human, is the best way to communicate is keeping this language simple. So that everybody can understand, whether it's the seven year old or the 70 year old or the high level academic or somebody who's got um, developmental disabilities or neuro neurodiversity disabilities, it's having that common language
1: is what's really important. Do you know in, in school, because I don't know if you know, but I also trained as a social worker oh, and great. when I was in school, I said. This language that you're asking us to use is elitism. Most of the yeah. people that we serve would not understand it. Like, why do we get extra marks for making it unintelligible uh, for the majority of people? It was, a, it was an issue for me. So I, I love what you're saying is that we, oh, sorry about that. we need sorry. to make it easy for everybody to understand. Mm. Yeah, and just the language and looking at the, the
0: 13 psychosocial factors, what has been becoming more interesting is, you know, I love sharing information. I'll share it with everybody because I believe in it and the value of it. But then, again, past experience, some roles I've had has been in behavioral consultant in the school. So it's looking at we can have common language, but sometimes, and I kind of, break it down to challenges, barriers, or obstacles. So a barrier is kind of like, it's a mountain, you're training for it. You can't go over it unless you're trained. So you might have a skill deficit. An obstacle, you can go above it, under it, around it. So it's brainstorming, there's ways around. And the challenge is more looking at our policies and procedures and processes that might kind of create the stall. So when I was looking at the thirteen cycle social factors, what I'm learning because I love sharing the information is that even though sometimes the word is common, it's still not fully understood. What it looks like, feels like, how would others
1: notice it to be different? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I was just listening to Brene um, Brown's Atlas of the Heart, and oh, she talks. Yeah, she talks about the difference between humiliation and shame, and mm. and I had no idea what that nuance was. But the difference is, when I feel shame, I think I'm a bad person. When I feel humiliated, I think you are making me look like a bad person, and I'm angry about it. And, uh, you know, language means so much if we don't have a shared understanding. Um, With the psychosocial factors, uh, one of the things that I'm hoping gets into this version of the standard because we're updating it. It's 10 Mm -hmm. years old is that every psychosocial factor is a continuum that could be protective or could create risk. And again, how do we get that across to people in a way that's easy to understand? So how do you explain it? Well, I was actually recently
0: had a real good conversation and I've been asking people and actually did a post um, regarding the one factor of what is psychological protection in a workplace right what does that look like for you what does that mean would you be able to identify it and many people could you know say it's the policies but that's written documentation but what does that look like how can you help support it and many people didn't understand behaviorally, what does psychological protection look like? So I would give an example of, you know, say you were COVID, right? COVID's around the world. You came back from being off from severe COVID. You're returning to work. Your first day back, how you're greeted, the workload that you resume, the conversations with your management team or manager or your coworkers, is it welcoming? Is it recognizing you just had, you know, we're really sick and we'll, you know, let you have a day to catch up on the hundred and billion emails, right? And this is kind of what's been going up. Or is it the status quo that yeah, COVID's here, you're back to work, carry on like nothing happened? So yeah.
1: psychological protection is that culture, is the interaction. Yeah, I, I like to describe psychological protection as somebody's got my back and that could be the benefit plan, it could be my leader, it could be my coworkers, but that feeling that I'm not gonna fall on my face and everybody's gonna walk over me. Yeah. yeah for sure. It's, and and you just kind of
0: mentioned it, right? It could be that that benefit plan or the EAP. There is resources there. But again, it was um what I found interesting was we can, and what I've learned, you know, just doing this through many years, but you know, diving deeper to get the more um, internalized and transformational learning to share it, to teach others, is that we can't assume everybody is aware of the resources there are, right? They might be there listed. They might be on your internet service. They might be, you know, shared at the very beginning of your interview when you first got hired. But if we all assume whether you're frontline or your management or your upper level, that everybody knows where the resources are, then we're not kind of supporting that psychological safe culture.
1: Mm -hmm. One of the things that I say to leaders is if you've never called the EAP for help, if you've Mm -hmm. never picked up that phone and gone through that process, figured out what intake was, who you speak to, how long it takes, then how can you look somebody in the eye and say, yeah, this is safe for you. This could be good for you. Or are you just saying, yeah, you know, people like you, we have these resources.
0: Yeah, exactly. Or it's looking at, you know, time management or work-life balance. If you're talking to leaders in C-suite where their entire life has been no boundaries of work-life balance, they don't, they don't behaviorally understand, let alone cognitively understand what does that really mean or look like until you actually try it yourself.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Trina, with um, with the baby boomers aging and so many of them who were very um, focused on work and then they retire and they look around and there's nobody. They never developed relationships with their own families that, you know, they're estranged and work was everything. And then all of a sudden they're alone. And yeah. uh, that's that's a tough place to be and it's unfortunate some people don't understand the importance of continuing with those relationships for sure and what what it just made me
0: kind of think of with that statement of yours is um i've always asked myself you know major life decisions or choices the rocking chair test and where would i be in 80 years you know, when I'm sitting on my rocking chair, reflecting on, like, what do I want my memories to be? So if we use the rocking chair test into COVID has kind of, as I summarized it, COVID a death, the way we used to live. So it's a grief. And we've all had to grieve. But here's an opportunity to create a leadership legacy with everybody having a role in it. And that's how I see the standards is everybody gets to have a collaborative role of improving our workplaces, being a part of that leadership legacy, new culture, as we move forward.
1: Uh, Yeah, I love that, Trina, because my thing is um, that a life is only about creating a memory day by day, moment by moment, you're making choices and that's what your whole legacy will be. And with um, young people, I say, you know, you're every day you're writing your story and why not be the hero of that story? Why not make it what you want it to be? Not that you can write your story so it's a happily ever after, but you're going to write the story so that you are the hero. You're the one that uh, decides what to do.
0: Which, yeah, which ties into, again, what is just kind of what I hear, too, is what is your narrative? And, you know, talking to the leaders and whether it's the middle management, C-suite, even the front line, when you're talking about what is your narrative, wouldn't it be great of in the headlines for the news instead of seeing, you know, your company or this company or this federal department or this provincial or this police force, you know, their top has, you know, been charged with whatever offense or Discrimination, human rights complaint. How about what if your company is headlines are we've integrated the national standards of Canadian health, psych, and safety. We've integrated the ISO standards, which is exciting because that is so new, which means there's such a value, right? So it's changing the lens and creating that narrative that we want to
1: have. Well, and that narrative is going to become more and more. Important because of what we're calling the great resignation or the great reset. Because if you don't have that narrative, how are you going to attract talent?
0: Exactly. And it comes to that onus too. And I like even my kids, they're young adults, is now when you're going for job interviews and you have that opportunity to ask the questions, reflect back. It's the questions regarding culture. Mm -hmm. Do you have you incorporated? Canadian national standards into your workplace culture. Do you know what that is? Do you know the new labor code laws relate to the workplace violence? Right? It's that psychological
1: protection if you can have that safe conversation. That's what I say. My kids are so much smarter than I was. You know, I was taught to be obedient, to do what you're told to do and to follow through. And we didn't raise our kids like that. We raised them to think for themselves. And, Mm -hmm. uh, they're just—they're not going to put up with the kinds of um, stress and strain that we did. Yeah, yeah. and and then
0: for those that are hiring, it's not. I try to change the lens to have that paradigm shift. So don't take it personally. The questions—it's become curious about the shift. Become curious about the headlines about the Great Resignation or, you know, the shift that's going on. So you can grow as well
1: because life is dynamic so what you're describing and just for those that are listening you're describing a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset can you expand on that Trina well I I like to call it growth
0: mindset but I call it resiliency mindset so being a a resiliency facilitator for over 20 years it's looking at that past lessons learned Pick, pick an example of you know your career that didn't go well, how did you get past it to where you are today? What was the learning you took away? What are some of the key traits, strengths, resiliency traits, workplace traits traits that you have that helped you succeed to be the leader you are today? So if you can't self-reflect on how you grew personally, professionally, how
1: do you teach that or share that with somebody else to help them move forward? Yeah. So it's so critical right in the workplace and the more people who get it, the easier their life becomes, but also the better they are in supporting others. Um, Pardon me. One of the things uh, among the many things that you do is you talk about trauma informed uh, conflict resolution. Can you talk about that, what it is, how you do it? Yeah, for sure. So
0: we'll take COVID as the the primary example of what's going on. COVID has created a worldwide trauma. And the analogy to kind of look at how COVID impacts people, each individual will have their own experience. But it's like um, talking with a peer who was a police officer. It's like being stalked. You're hypervigilant because you don't know when you might get it or how bad you will get it or how it will impact your personal life and your professional life. So it creates this trauma. So being trauma-informed and conflict resilient means that my approach is the awareness of how trauma impacts humans. All of us, we're all humans. And when you're trauma-informed, you understand trauma responses. And there's fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. So when you incorporate that into creating psychologically health and safe workplaces, workplaces come with different potential traumas and risks. And if you're able to come from a trauma-informed lens, which you understand trauma impacts everybody, nobody knows when you may be triggered. So it's just that awareness and education that recognizing behavioral cues or conversations that somebody might be off, and you check in with them. The resiliency component comes from if trauma can be intergenerationally passed on for seven generations and it it's on our epigenetics, well, then so can resiliency. So, why not step back and look at where your trauma, your adversity, your conflicts have taken place? What is the learning? And where are you today to help build that resilient mindset, restock your resiliency reservoir? and Have that resiliency growth so that you become trauma growth, not trauma impaired.
1: So many leaders um, will react to the behaviors rather than having an understanding of what might motivate them. Can you talk about some of the behaviors that you know may be related to trauma that leaders might mistake for? something else? Well, we
0: can take, again, the examples of COVID and any first responders or the healthcare, anybody working in healthcare. You know, they come to work one day, they're doing their regular duties, they're having their morning meeting, and, you know, six months, year, two years, and during the meeting, you look over and maybe one of the nurses, one of the um, anesthesiologists, doctor specialists, is not present in the meeting, and they're actually, they're looking like they're spaced out, right? What can be happening is maybe they're overtired, but maybe they're having a memory of somebody who just passed, right, that they're working with. So they're actually having a trauma response because they're flashbacking to a prior time and they're not present in the present day. So the importance of that creating that psychological wellness or culture and safe place, that includes checking in with your peers, no matter what role or frontline higher level,
1: it's having that mutual um, check in. Yeah, it's a, it's a simple question, right? When you see yeah. somebody who appears spaced out or not present is just, you know, where's your mind at right now? Yeah, and and letting like doing it in a way that they feel safe that you're not catching them doing something, yeah. but all of us have our minds wander from time mm-hmm. to time. So, um, Trina, in 2023, one of my plans is to look at something that Francois Metu calls psychological PPE, and mm-hmm. what I'd like to do. Is consider how we can better protect um, all employees, but especially those who are um, more likely to be exposed to protect themselves against trauma, not, not yeah. having trauma happen. And yeah. I think about some of the grocery store clerks where people came in and they're just, you know, freaking yeah. out. And these people have to deal with that. I think about librarians for whom somebody comes in off the street and they're aggressive or impaired and, you know, they're not trained to deal with that, um, that we could do a better job. What's your thoughts on how we would do that? Well, what first came to mind was for the grocery
0: clerks, the librarians, any any um, store or service. Has the employer created kind of like a checklist that if you encounter somebody who's abusive or aggressive towards you, what is the process policy procedure that you're followed up on? So you go report it. After you report it, you know, does the manager, is the manager aware of what that check-in looks like? Do you put in an occupational health and safety um, hazard report? Because what if that's cumulative? What if that same person keeps coming off the street and becomes abusive and the escalation and aggression increases, right? We can't control other people's behavior, but a a quick checklist that is easily shared with any new employee, easily accessible, that it becomes a part of the everyday routine of how you check in if an incident should occur. So do they tell their manager? Do they write a report? Um, how many days? And this is an interesting one where a lot of people, an incident happens, management comes in, hey, how are you doing? If there's EAP, you know there's EAP. The person says fine, but nobody ever follows up. They just leave it and they expect the employee to then come to the manager to say, hey, this all of a sudden has hit me now and it's a week, two weeks, a month later, right? So mm-hmm we need to change that script of putting the onus on the employee after an incident and have maybe a checklist timeline of appropriate timelines to check in to mitigate any future trauma or ingrained trauma response, right?
1: Yeah, so the other thing that um, occurs to me is we know a lot about why some people will end up with post-traumatic stress disorder from the same event that somebody walks away from unscathed. Um, are are you familiar with that? Yeah, yes, I am. Yeah, so can you speak a bit about um, what those differences are and how we might inform more people so they uh, recognize, oh, I'm having a reaction and this person may not be.
0: Yeah. I, I, where my perspective comes from is becoming that trauma resiliency, right? So nobody knows how you will be impacted by a certain event, but it's just recognizing that if you're able to sit, and again, self-reflection strengthens your resiliency. So I actually did something myself this past summer was when you're able to step back and you kind of do, no matter what environment you're working in, you got to take the onus on yourself to do a risk assessment of what might be at risk for you based on your past experiences, right? And nobody knows anybody's historical past traumas or conflicts, right? But it's just recognizing you might not know when it will impact you. So the importance is understanding what does the trauma response look like to you, if you've had one before in your own body, to recognize should it come up again Do you have a skill set, a toolbox of how to calm yourself down or bring yourself back to um, not being stable? I don't like the word stable, like being grounded, right? So no matter trauma response of the first time or the 20th time, what is interesting and applicable and free, just like the Canadian National Standards and all the tools are free, is breath to breathe. Right. Everybody assumes if you're anxiety or stressed or afraid or something happens and somebody tells you to breathe. But how many people have been taught the proper steps of the tool of breathing to actually make it work for you?
1: Yeah, and that's exactly. Like I... I'm breathing. I'm already yeah. breathing. So it's not helping. Yeah. Right. And then that's where, again, we assume
0: people have the skill set and the knowledge because it sounds so simple. But focus square breathing when you're in that heightened state or hypervigilant, is so hard to do. Mm-hmm. So that's where when we're looking at the tools and the skills and the PPE for psychological health and safety, it's breaking it down to giving concrete examples of the behavioral
1: activities, actions that people have to take. Yeah. I mean, there's an exercise where they have you raise your heart rate. So by running or doing something to raise your heart rate, and then get you to do that breathing exercise immediately. And it's trying to simulate that stressed out anxious state, and being able to bring yourself down. And this kind of training, then Mm -hmm. allows you to put it into practice when you need it, as opposed to uh, intellectually knowing you should breathe. Exactly. So it's even looking at what is psychological protection,
0: you know, by the employer, that could be and I've heard some people are doing it, which I think is fantastic. It's once a day at a certain time, the entire company stops, and they do a 10 minute meditation. Mm -hmm. Right? It's that practicing what you want to encourage others to do to deescalate and come back to, you know, the present time. But if you have that in place, and you see the president of the company or the CEO is participating along with the frontline worker, you know there's buy-in. When the emails come out that here's all these courses and you can do this, here's the email, checky box, that's not behaviorally demonstrating the buy-in of you actually mean something to the culture, value you as an employee, and I actually practice it myself, so I know it's
1: important. Yeah. It's it's really interesting, Trina, is that many organizations want to um, look at psych health and safety. They want the policies, they want the assessments, they want the measurements, but they don't want to change the way they interact with people. And it's uh, you can change psych health and safety without policies or programs or any of that. But you can't change it. Um, without interacting in a different way.
0: Exactly. And that's where I feel the education is so important of what it looks like, feels like, sounds like. But for the the higher level C suite leaders, you know, CEOs, owners, it comes down to time and money. Everything always comes down to time and money. So if we can show, you know, example of the cost benefits of proactive implementation versus the reactive they get that visual of, wow, there is a cost to conflict. There is a cost to ignoring um, mental health in the workplace and wellness. So an mm-hmm. example is sometimes even looking at, you know, take one business or one organization, just calculate one issue. Because everybody knows when there's issues. Just pick one issue of, of an employee or a manager. And their time off. So they get paid for their time off because it's paid sick leave. However, now let's break down all the tangible and intangible costs throughout the year that it has additionally cost besides this one employee being off. And what if it was because there was interpersonal conflict and we assume again that everybody has the skill sets to have difficult conversations or challenge their own unbiases? So if we could incorporate that into what does psychological safety look like under the different factors, where would unbiased, checking your own unbiased, your conscious biases come in, right? What does that look like, feel like, sound like if you were to
1: put it into place today? Mm -hmm. We we had an amazing experience. We had a Mm roundtable. And many of the people that were part of it were either trans or non-binary and really talking about implicit bias uh, and what it's like for them. And what we came away with is uh, we created a workshop on implicit bias and we had a very well-loved, well-respected leader who was part of this. And the question was, um, how do you support Uh, employees in the LGBTQ community and this leader said well how would I know and so he said you know do you talk about weddings do you talk about um, parents do you talk about families and like all the time and do you ever talk about same-sex marriages or you know blended families or people that and it was like this light went on Um, for this person because the thing about implicit bias is it's often unconscious Mm -hmm. and so we don't know what we don't know in in your work do you teach this kind of thing to people in the workplace I don't necessarily provide the workshops
0: I incorporate it into the skill set training for the resiliency or the trauma informed because that unconscious bias impacts people when you're working with them, if, if they've been exposed to a trauma, right? So it's, what, what's interesting is, you know, that conversation where he had the late fall, it's putting that example in where, you know, employees are always encouraged to go talk to your manager. So they go, they're struggling, you know, having some maybe hard time with um, their tasks, meeting the timelines. So they get up the courage to go have the conversation with their manager. As they're talking, the manager then turns the conversation onto themselves. Well, when this happened to me, well, when this happened to me, well, you know what, this is just how it is. So for the person who had the courage to come have that open, safe communication, they weren't hurt. They were shut down and the reversal went to all about the manager. So creating that, you know, recognition of when we're having conversations, Did we somehow turn the table back onto ourselves rather than actually listening and hearing what the person is
1: sharing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and being able to check in with them, is this what you're saying, rather than agreeing or disagreeing or turning it back on themselves, as you say, to to really be able to say, "Oh, okay, I understand your perspective. Yeah, Uh, it's it's a skill set that lots of leaders don't have. They're good at problem solving and coming up with things really quickly and analyzing things. But to actually stop long enough to get someone else's perspective is is uh, quite different. So tell me some of the other things that you teach in the work that you do, Trina. Um, Well, I incorporate resiliency on itself. We actually have an assessment
0: tool that was part of my training to help people identify their innate resiliency traits. So what that means is there's, there's actually 16 innate protective individual factors and then there's environmental ones. So it's going back to even your earliest childhood memory of your first conflict or first potential trauma. How did you cope, right? So if you can't name specific traits, how do you pull them out when we need them? And this is where when you build your trauma, conflict, resiliency, you help identify others' strengths in the workplace. So, for example, for myself, like recent example I'll give is um you know persistence and perseverance, right? if If it's something high risk or something, I just go action it, and then decompress after it happens. So funny story just a couple of weeks ago, um, beeping at like four four thirty in the morning, right? You get up and I'm trying to follow this beep. And my daughter comes walking up the stairs because her bedroom in the basement holding the carbon monoxide detector going make it stop beeping because I got school and work and I'm like looking at her going do you know what that is right she's like well yeah but just make it stop I'm like that's not how it works right <laughs> so instead of going in panic and going okay she's awake we'll make sure my son's awake I can wake him up right because it's it's uh smellless no odor so you know go upstairs get the other one plug it in the alarm goes off again so it doesn't happen often, so I'm reading the instructions. What do I do? Call 911. I call 911, but I'm not really sure who I'm asking for. And I just say carbon monoxide is going on So the fire department comes early in the morning and everything's good. But then it took me a while to process that heightened risk, right? I was hyper-vigilant. It was potential life-threatening. Mm-hmm.
1: Right?
0: So I always just, it's a skill set that I do in any conflict or any trauma. It's just, okay, I got through with it. How did I get through it? I did the steps that you're supposed to do. I breathed and I have to remind myself, that's the key, right? Breathing sounds easy, but you have to remind yourself to breathe when it's high stress, high conflict, trauma, just anxious, right? Or busy in the work. How many of us don't breathe as we're really focused? Right. So it's taken that time to reflect and we're all human again. So even though it's a high level C-suite or CEO, they have gotten through trauma. They've gotten through conflicts. They just have never maybe been given that opportunity to have that safe environment to share their
1: story. Right. And yeah. And to reflect back on, so how mm -hmm. did I cope? What did I do? And in some cases, They'll reflect back and realize they're not over it. And in many cases, they'll say, oh, no, I did this and I moved forward. Um, I remember, Trina, feeling that resilience um, training in particular was a way to blame the victim, to say to employees, we're going to have a stressful, chaotic, pressured, conflict-ridden organization, and you ought to become more resilient. And then I found out, like I have many times in my life, how wrong I was that, you know, your example there is why every single one of us should become more resilient in order to get through everything that life's gonna throw at us. And uh, yeah. Yeah,
0: so what I love about my assessment tool is, you know, it's catered to whichever clientele group is, but the assessment tool is universal and neutral that you can take that same tool that I give you and you learn about yourself, you can go teach it to your partner, you can go teach it to your kids. you can use it as part of the hiring practice. You can integrate it into the operational strategic frameworks, right? It's looking taking the thirteen psychosocial factors and what are your strengths that you could contribute to your workplace culture that you would shine, right? So that's what I love about. The, the national standards and the training and all the free resources, it's that they're there and everybody has a strength. So let's help each other identify our strengths to improve that culture and create that leadership legacy rather than assuming it's somebody else's responsibility when it's all of
1: us collectively. Yeah. Every single person. And that's what I say. You can stand on your head being the greatest leader that ever lived but if your employees are not treating each other with respect, you cannot have a psychologically safe workplace. So yeah. it's, yeah, it really is that way. I'm just thinking um, about you saying about strengths. And I mm-hmm. think that we often focus, especially in the workplace, on what our weaknesses are, where we need to manage our performance, where we need to build skills. And yet, if, The going gets tough. It's a lot easier for people to leverage their strengths than it is to leverage their weaknesses, but only when you're aware of them, right? Right. And that awareness comes too within workplace cultures,
0: the understanding. And if you don't understand and you're in a management level or leadership level, it should be your responsibility to go educate yourself a little bit more about accommodation or invisible disabilities or neurodiversity, right that square box of how roles are fitted right? You get the outcomes, but everybody does it differently and if somebody's lagging behind rather than see it as a negative and they need um, you know some employment um, performance review stating that they're lagging here, what if that conversation was that they were dyslexic? or they were um, Asperger's and their style of learning and performance is better verbally than written. Was anybody offered or have that suggestion that you you can voice dictate your reports rather than having to type them, right? We have to look beyond what we assume is average, normal, or the everyday because we all have unique
1: strengths and through resiliency, you help people pull out those strengths. Mm -hmm. I love how um, I think it was Microsoft uh, was specifically hiring people that were on the um, spectrum for autism and giving them very specific jobs, plus a mentor who could support them through some of those things. And they found that their productivity and the value they brought to the company was quite high. And I remember um, working with a client once and they they had an employee who had borderline personality disorder. They said they're one of the best workers we ever have, but they're just so difficult at team meetings. And I said, do they need to be there? Well, everybody needs to be there. Well, why? Why do they need to be there if they're not contributing, if they don't feel good about it, if they're doing their work? Like, as you say, let's think about this differently, that everybody doesn't yeah. have to be the same.
0: Elon Musk, just I was watching a video just yesterday, and he was being interviewed. And that's what he said. Like in his businesses, he goes, if you're at the meeting, but if you're not contributing, and there's no reason for you to be there, leave. It's okay. Right? And he didn't take offense to it. It's like it's, it's wasting your, your personal time. So why would you stay? Mm-hmm. right? Where people take offense if you don't show up because of the the collective assuming this is how it was, so this is how it should always be. Yeah. And I think that's what COVID has kind of stirred the pot. What was doesn't exist anymore, so let's create that leadership legacy of what it can
1: be and go forward, not back. So what's your vision for the future, post-COVID workplaces? If, if you could make it what you want to make it? Oh, geez. Good question.
0: (laughs) What I'm excited, like, and I truly, and people probably think I'm just, she's just different, but I'm excited how workplace violence and the importance of workplace wellness, recognizing mental health and psychological safety in the workplace has now become ISO standards as of 2021. So I think it was 23 or 26 countries actually signed on about the importance of creating wellness, recognizing the impact of mental health, and what is psychological health and safety. So future forward thinking, it's making that safe place that if no matter what role you have, if you have ideas to share about how you can improve the culture, how you can collaboratively address maybe some conflicts that nobody's ever thought of, Bring the ideas forward of you, do your own research, and share some of these awesome resources that Canada has in how to improve the workplace, right? Don't wait for top-down, ticky box that we can't implement or try something until the person at the very top says so. Even though lost in translation, you can have a workplace assessment at a high level. You can have completed the workplace, you know, assessment of the psychological health and safety, guarding mind. You can have working groups. And then when it gets to the top or the bottom three levels of frontline, middle management and upper management, and you ask, so what does this mean to you? What does this look like? Because here's the stats, here's the, you know, report, and nothing changes. So for me, change is, well, this came from top down. Let's just have a meeting and have a conversation let's brainstorm. What does it look like? Let's bring it up on the internet. Let's dissect what are each of the standards and what does that mean for each of us in the environment that
1: we work in Mm -hmm. and just open that conversation up. Um, Dr. Jodi Samra and I were talking about that because this was shortly after the standard was created and one of the clauses is a competency clause saying that If you're a leader, you ought to be competent to lead in a psychologically safe way, which is great that, you know, you're held accountable, but there was no tool or assessment to do it. And Mm -hmm. so what she did is she looked at the psychosocial factors, but only from the perspective of the leader and Mm -hmm. what they do. And uh, it's been interesting Um, now By the time we air this, this research will be out, but it's not at this moment. But we did the uh, psychologically safe leader assessment in a national um, survey with the Mental Health Research Canada. And then we did the employee feedback version and employees and leaders think they are so much more psychologically safe than what the employees think. And it's yeah. consistent right across the board. And I look at it, Trina, and there's there's reasons why it's different. Um, some of it is the leaders yeah. maybe just are not thinking it through. But some of it is they don't communicate to the employees what they do and how they would do it. So the expectations or the knowledge of how they would support them isn't there. Yeah. Yeah. Do do you see that in terms of leaders thinking they're doing better?
0: Yeah, it's twofold. It made me think of, you know, how to make it more um, simplified for leaders. It's almost like that um, competency, taking the women, right? Women's training. Everybody has to take it. There's actual like visual pictures. But when you engage, you know, online, it's really check checky box that you can get through, right? But it's kind of making it condensed and simplified, easy to understand for that. And then when looking at that that leader component, if I was just sharing this example the other day with somebody, I go, for me, if I'm given direction on something, I'll ask for the policy or procedure because my learning style is I like to read it, highlight it, have a paper copy with me to understand what I'm doing and the why. That's just how I process but in my past i have encountered where somebody has i asked for the policy procedure and i explained to them this is my learning style right because i'm i'm really okay with being transparent so i explained this is my learning style i like paper but their unconscious bias is i'm challenging their authority because I'm asking for the clarity of the documentation, right? Mm, So it comes back to the leaders thinking because I'm in the position, I don't have to communicate clarity to help others understand. And I think that's what the psychological health and safety is communicating from the top down. We did this assessment, here's the overview. How about share the full report, the beautiful color-coded report of the outcome? Why is there a
1: fear associated with sharing that with everybody? Yeah, yeah, but, but there is, for sure. Right. With many organizations, there's a fear. And yet, to me, it's like, okay, we did this. This is where yeah. we've got room for improvement. Let's talk about it, you know? What, what do you yeah. want us to do differently? And where, where have we not met expectations? It's yeah. So, Trina, that... To me, there's two things going on, and they're related. But one is whether or not our leaders have insecure egos and whether or not they have adequate levels of emotional intelligence. Now, that's another survey that's gonna come out soon, Um, but we did it in 2012, and we tested the emotional intelligence of managers across the country. And do you know that only one percent of managers were strong in all four areas of emotional intelligence and almost half were challenged, meaning that their scores were so low that it was putting either themselves or their direct reports at risk. So, I mean, it was quite stunning. I am hopeful that that's not the case today, 10 years later. I'm hopeful that we're more aware that managers need this ability. I I think 10 years, there, there should be,
0: right? I'm hopeful too. And what I think, even though COVID has been awful and has created such hardship, I think that whether anybody realizes it or not, that emotional intelligence had to come into play. Bring awareness to how we all had to learn to manage and cope differently, like no other time before. And they might not be able to name it as emotional intelligence, but if their experience of somebody in their family, extended family, co worker, somebody's experienced something or a serious loss, and I think it's almost the innate emotional intelligence that was never practiced before because they never had
1: to practice it has been mandated to be developed to a somewhat degree. Mm -hmm. Yes, but that's the beauty of emotional intelligence is it can be learned. It's not fixed. It's not uh, impossible. Um, Trina, what would be your advice? Um, Many leaders who have gone through this pandemic themselves, of course, with their families and are trying to support employees are already feeling burned out in fact between 35 and 66 percent of Canadians are burned out so how do what advice do you have for these leaders who now are going to have more responsibility Mm -hmm. as people start to return to work and whether they have to do hybrid work and they're going to have to accommodate what's your advice to those leaders right now do that check in with yourself before you go and have a conversation with anybody
0: and recognize you're human. And when I used to do parenting courses a long time ago, put yourself into that person's position and what they might be feeling, experiencing, and how would you want to be treated? How would you want to be talked to? And sometimes it's not trying to come up with a solution. It's just hearing them. Let them create their own solutions because I've experienced and conducted some amazing workplace assessments that whereby there was some high risk. They were highlighted. But follow up individual interviews with all persons at every level, the collaboration and the brainstorming and that engagement that they all wanted to better the environment was was twofold. Like it was exponentially exciting because you could see everybody wants to be a part of it. So just recognize you're human and do that check-in within yourself before you go have that conversation to see how, if you were in that position, what would it feel
1: like, look like and mean to you and how somebody approached you? Yeah, that's great. Um, And I think about your conflict resolution Um, and in workplaces, The whole idea of psychological safety, people being able to speak up, people being able to say what's on their mind is terrifying because they're worried that people are going to complain all the time. They're going to be rude. They're going to be criticizing and judging us as leaders. It's just going to be chaos. Um, But if we teach people how to have a respectful difference of opinion then we can have a psychologically safe workplace. So can you talk a bit about how we can help our employees to be able to disagree respectfully?
0: Um, one is become curious about the conflict, right? You have a position, but become curious about it of the solutions might not necessarily fit what the conflict is. So you want to resolve it because everybody does. So let's go into it with already brainstorming some ideas. What does it look like if it was resolved and you walked into work tomorrow? What does that look like, feel like, sound like? What would somebody else notice is different? Because you have your role and part in resolving that conflict. The other um, kind of engage in that conversation and safe place, whenever there's a meeting, no matter what level of team participants, And there's always usually the roundtable. Does anybody ever have anything to say, right? And goes around the roundtable, there's usually silence. How about the leader start the roundtable and say, you know what? I want everybody to share an idea or thought on what we just talked about to contribute to what is the outcome we're looking for. Encourage the conversation. Start it off with, you know what, nobody's, you know, unless there's a serious reason you have to pass, But instead of that silent round table, does anybody want to say anything further before we end it? End it with a positive, proactive solution, idea,
1: recommendation, share. Which aligns with the concept of meaningful participation of employees that's in the standard as opposed to, well, we did a survey, so you've participated, that's it. Exactly, right? And it, it is, it's just providing that environment
0: to have people feel safe to communicate and share Mm -hmm. right because the introverts will never say anything you always have the strong extrovert but the introverts, unless everybody's participating won't say anything or if there is a culture of fear by suggesting that and changing it up it might enlighten the environment and engage higher levels to be more creative rather than the top tier down, just do as I say, checky box, ensure compliance, but there's no communication, there's no human factor in it.
1: Yeah. I always like those uh organizations where somebody's saying, You should speak up, you should say whatever you want. Like that's the kind of environment we want that you should yeah. but but when you do you're going to get slapped down or you're going to get ridiculed. And so you just, yeah, no, we'll smile yeah. and nod. It's easier. And that's why if you come from solution focused,
0: identifying your resiliency traits, right? Use it as a tool. Let's go around the table. So we just experienced COVID. We're coming back from work. You know, here's the, the list of resiliency traits. What trait helped you get through COVID and allow you to come back to work? Which one stood out for you? right and that anxiety to come back to work we were even having a conversation just in like the restaurant industry that anxiety to come back to work is normal so let's normalize that trauma response that people are having from COVID and anxiety so what can the employer do to help mitigate reduce that anxiety feeling that's natural and normal for everybody coming back to work in offices option mask no mask option you know Do people feel more safe if there's a hand sanitizer as soon as they walk in the office, right? Little things
1: that help show safety, security with COVID presence. Yeah. Do you know the idea that I thought was brilliant is that you give three bracelets to every employee and they're Mm -hmm. red, green, and yellow. And they choose every day they choose which one they want to wear and it gives you information, but it sounds, you know, it doesn't have to be, well, I'm terrified of COVID. So I'm red. It could be yeah. I'm red because I'm going to go uh, see a new baby that isn't vaccinated. And I don't want to take any chances or, you know, today I'm green because I really want to interact with people in a certain way. And tomorrow I'll be yellow because I've got this tickle in my throat and we could use it for people who have social anxiety. We could use it for people who, you know, just didn't get enough sleep and they really want to focus on their work and not interact. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. It, it's that behavioral cue.
0: I've done it in mediation. So where if somebody's getting overwhelmed or if there's some mental health issues or accommodations, we always in the pre-mediation have that conversation of, um, so if you need a break, there's one statement you say, or a behavioral cue, like it could be just, you know, tug the ear. And then I'll take, as a mediator, take the responsibility on myself and say, hey, you know sorry guys, can we just have a break? I need to use the washroom or whatever. But I take the, the responsibility on myself to distract from the other people. So, as a leader, right, if something's going on in your workplace, it's how to, you know, if you know somebody's just had a death in the family, right, and lots is going on, it's busy in the workplace, just have that conversation. You know what? We're going into this meeting. There's some like tight timelines. It's going to get chaotic. If you need to walk out or you need a timeout or you need somehow for me to help support you, give me a behavioral cue, right? That just says, you know what, I'm going to leave and no, no attention to me. And you give them that safe place to then
1: depart and regroup again and then come back. Yeah, I love your very practical, helpful tips. and I know we're coming close to the end. I have a question. Now, I know that you know the actual definition of psychological health and safety in the workplace, but I want you to describe it to somebody who has no idea what it is and you want to convey um, that concept to someone. How would you describe it? That if you went
0: into your workplace culture and no matter how chaotic it might be or there might be an incident that you know that there is one person It doesn't have to be a direct manager it could be a co-worker it could be somebody you pre-connected um, with but you know when you walk in that you are safe and that if you did have a breakdown you will not be you know Looked at differently, you will be supported if you need time off, if you need flexible work arrangements or accommodations. You can have somebody to help support you to communicate that with you if you can't on your own. And sometimes that's where, again, where we think everybody has that capacity when they're stressed or trauma or conflict or something not safe is going on, harassed, that everybody has that. Ability to speak out when needed. So it's helping communicate to that person. You know what? Let me help you. If I wasn't in that workplace, let me help you two or three people who you could identify and go have a conversation with them. That if you needed some support or just somebody standing next to you or somebody to vent with or somebody just, you know what, check in on me today. You could go to them and ask
1: for that support. Yeah, I I really look at um, the mentor systems, the buddy systems, the peer support, and think that's one way to make sure that nobody falls through the cracks, Mm -hmm. right, that you have all of that to support them. Trina, who is likely to contact you to take advantage of your services? Is it HR? Is it the CEO?
0: I've had everybody. I've had HR, I've had labor relations, I've had business owners, I've had union, I've had school districts, because at the end of the day, conflict is inevitable, right? We all have to learn and become curious and grow from it. And psychological health and safety is in every environment where workplace occurs because My passion of sharing the message and educating is if we're not safe at work and we're stressed at work, we take that home with us and our innocent children, partners, family members who are not a part of that environment get the secondary impact whether we like it or not. So to prevent any intergenerational trauma or intergenerational conflict, let's all be a
1: part of the solution. So if somebody wants to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Um, my website,
0: and I know it's long, <laughs> uh, TLR Solutions for Conflict. Um, there they can find my contact information for email and phone number as well, or on LinkedIn
1: under Trina Realconflict. Sure. That's great. Thank you so much, Trino. Really enjoyed. I think we could speak for a couple of more hours. And yeah. uh, I think that you've, provided a lot of really practical, useful tips and strategies for people as well. So thank you for that. Thank you.
0: I I, I think it's very valuable that we have a a common language, right? That common language and what does that behaviorally look like so we can all do it.
1: Yeah, for sure. So this podcast will show up on the psychhealthandsafetyincanada.com, but Also, when it's ready to go, it'll be on LinkedIn and uh, we'll share it far and wide. So thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to the
0: Psych Health and Safety Canada podcast. To stay up to date with the best content on workplace mental health in North America, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the Flourish DX community at www.flourishdx.com.